All right, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James. You know, uh, there are some Sundays where it falls where we, uh, we'll have Brian and I, or one of us will preach, or both of us will preach, or, or Blake will fill in, and, and we're having you know, both these services, and we don't know the exact book schedule that we're going to go through, um, or at least for both services. Sometimes we'll take a, a Sunday and we'll try to kind of plan together what we're going to preach that Sunday. We may, may do a, a message that builds off the other, and we're planning for that, and we know what we're doing, you know, and that's the goal. Uh, most of the time, though, we're, uh, we're just taking the, the next book in the morning service, and then we'll preach kind of a one-off sermon in the afternoon, and they're not directly related, or at least we don't intend them to be. Um, but I will tell you that today, not only the morning service and then this service, which is still morning technically, I guess, but... Uh, these two services, but even our Sunday school, um, unplanned, at least in hu- humanly speaking, they all tie together really well. Uh, it's, it's as if we did plan each one of them this morning. So uh, God is a big God, and He knows how to work those things out. And, and I, you know, I, we mentioned this on, on numerous occasions, but uh, it, it's amazing to see when that does happen. But we will be in the book of James this morning. Uh, we preached through the book of James Several years back, it was in 2018, I think, when we started, and I remember that because that was the year that I was ordained, and that was the first book that I started preaching through. I, I didn't start preaching at the beginning of the book, though. Uh, I kind of jumped in maybe midways through, or not quite midways through, so I was not part of that beginning uh, journey. So uh, I wanted to take my shot at the the beginning of this book. Uh, now, I, Brian and and. and Todd actually preached through the passage that I'm preaching through this morning. They broke it off into two sermons, so pray for me that we get through this in a, in a timely fashion. I don't plan on going quite as deep in, into the passage that, uh, as they went into with the two sermons, but we are preaching through verses 19 through 25 in chapter 1 this morning. Let's begin by reading those verses. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, for if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We are jumping in in the first chapter this morning, but we are a few verses into the, the chapter. So... I do want to do a little catch up about the book itself and, and kind of just give an overview of, of the purpose of the book before we get into our passage. This book was written by the brother of Jesus James, not, not the Apostle James, but the brother of, of Jesus James. It was written to a group of Jews called the Dispersion. We see that in uh, the beginning of the chapter there in verse 1. It's written really to the, the 12 tribes as we see there in the Dispersion. Since James is writing this letter, we know he is the author of this letter. We know also that he was a, an elder there, at least at one point there in the church at Jerusalem. And so we can assume that most of the recipients here of this, this letter, the intended recipients, were probably members of that church, or at least former members of that church prior to the dispersion. And they would have been under James's 
shepherding at one point. And it's still probably, it seems from this letter, they, they were, were, he still considered them part of his, his flock. The primary purpose that James is writing, why he's writing this book, and, and this is crucial for our understanding of our passage and really of the entire book, it, it is, he's writing it concerning the testing of faith. See, these believers, they are dispersed. They're called to the dispersion because they had been under heavy persecution. And they had been dispersed from Jerusalem. They are, they're basically out trying to get away from this persecution. They're fleeing to some extent from this persecution. And the truth is, there's really no greater testing of a person's faith than during persecution. Right? I mean, that's where... It comes to a head. You're either a true believer or you're not. If you're willing to die for the cause of Christ, well then, you're a true believer. But those that are not a true believer, when that choice is put before them to either die or continue in the faith or deny the faith, they will choose to deny the faith, right? Because they care for themselves more than they care for the Lord. They care for the... Their, their own gods, their own God, which is themselves as, as non-believers, than they do themselves. And so that is the true test of, a, of faith, is, is during heavy persecution. And so James is, is writing to this group as they go through heavy persecution. And in doing so, he's writing them to give them several ways in which they will know how to know if their faith is real. They're struggling with that as they're, they're trying to Purse through this persecution and figure out, you know, how to how to approach it, how to handle it. He gives them several ways then, which they can examine themselves and their faith. Among those in this book, and obviously we will not go through uh, most of these, but among those ways in which he gives them to examine their faith is how they respond to trials, how they responded to the needs of others, specifically their fellow brothers and sisters, how they responded when they saw their brothers and sisters in need. They were to examine whether they showed partiality to those who came into their assembly. If they gave the rich the better seat and put the poor in the back. They were to examine whether they cared for others who were helpless, specifically the widows and the orphans. They were to examine whether or not they were able to tame their tongues. That's a big subject in this book. All of those subjects and more are given by James for these professing believers to examine themselves and examine their faith during the midst of persecution. But in our passage today, and here in verses 19 through 25, James addresses really what I believe to be the central question which they had to examine and answer as professing believers on whether. Their faith was sincere or not. How did they respond to God's Word? More directly, how did they respond to the preaching and teaching of God's Word? In light of that, the title of my sermon this morning is Responsibility to Respond. Responsibility to Respond. You see, you see it up there. But In this passage, and really as a theme for this book, James calls here for professing Christians, professing believers, to understand that God's Word requires... Humble acceptance through listening and, and, and let me emphasize that and again, obedience. It requires humble acceptance and obedience. He emphasizes that there is no true acceptance of God's Word without actual obedience. There is no saying, I believe, and then you go and live as the world and never change. There's no change in your life. I want us all to really Listen intently this morning. I want us to think through this and examine ourselves, not others. 
as we, we go through this passage. This is written for individual examination, for us to look at ourselves and how, it, how we can apply this to our own lives. So at beginning in verse 19, we read, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Beginning here in verse 19, James addresses those he believes to be fellow believers here, right? He says, Beloved brothers, those whom he knows had made a profession of faith and claimed to be followers of Christ. He wants them to know that he cared for them here as he begins and as he gets into this, this passage and this letter, he wants them to know that he cared for them, he loved them. And he does so by addressing them as beloved, right? Beloved brothers. But James here, he is going to address a very serious issue with them in our passage. But he wants them to know he's going to do this out of love for them. And he makes that clear here just to begin with. He wants to start there. James instructs the beloved brothers to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, from what I understand, it was common in Jewish synagogues at this time for people to attend the synagogue, hear someone speak, and then some would stand up after the, someone would speak for a little while and they would begin to maybe give their opinion about what, was, what the passage was saying, or they would argue or even debate at times about what had been said in the synagogue. So it seems that perhaps a group of these Jews had carried some of that over into their services there in the church. They had individuals who wanted to be teachers, and you learn more about this, we learn more about this as we went through the book, but they had some in the congregation as part of this group that wanted to be teachers, or they just wanted to argue with the teachers, or others who were within the congregation but they didn't have the gift to teach, nor the desire to properly teach and discern God's Word. They just wanted to argue. They wanted to be heard. They wanted their opinions known. They had a little knowledge, but thought they had a lot. And they wanted, again, people to hear what they had to say. So James calls them quick to speak, basically. He's referring to the opposite of slow to speak, right? They were quick to speak. James warns them, don't be quick to speak. Instead, be quick to hear and slow to speak. Now, this is wise in general. This is wise advice in general. I mean, wisdom in general tells us that we learn more by listening than we do speaking, right? I'm reminded of the popular, popular saying, and it's been attributed to, to two different men, Abraham Lincoln and Mark Twain. I'm not sure which one actually came up with the quote, but it is better to keep your mouth closed and let people think you are a fool than to open it and remove all doubt, right? You've probably heard that same thing. And the older I've gotten, I'll be honest, the more I've realized that I need to apply that to my life more and more. I don't have all the answers. My advice is not foolproof as I once thought. And I'm dumber than I like to admit. That's true. So it's wiser for me to remain quiet at times when I would have tried to speak in the past. I don't know for sure if Hannah would agree with that, but it is something I am attempting and trying to do. This should certainly, though, be the case when dealing with God's Word, right? I mean, we cannot have a good and clear understanding of God's Word, or we have to have, let me, sorry, we have to have a good and clear understanding of God's Word if we are going to attempt to teach it and tell others about it, right? This doesn't have to just apply to elders, though. It doesn't have to just apply to Sunday school teachers. This can apply to all of us. I mean, there are areas in all of our lives where we have an opportunity to teach or to talk to others and to tell others about God's Word. 
and maybe be tempted to do that when we shouldn't because we're not prepared to do that or we're not in the right frame of mind to do that. We should, we should make sure that we are, are speaking in a way which we are, are equipped to speak, right? That we've learned, we, we know what we're talking about. We're not just spouting off at the mouth something we're trying to teach others about, but we do have those opportunities. We need to learn God's Word first, be quick to hear, and then speak Look, some people have a personality where this is easier than, than others. I mean, some people, for some people, it's just easier for them to listen and learn, to be quiet. Maybe it's because they don't have confidence in themselves, but most often it's because they have humility, right? I mean, there's humility in that. They know they, they have a lot to learn. They gain more from listening. They realize that. So they're eager to listen and to learn. On the other hand, some people struggle with that a lot. Sometimes it's because people get excited about things they've learned or, or things they know and, and they just want to tell others about it. And, and that's certainly true about God's Word at times. And sometimes that means they want to correct others, right? They want to just be quick to, to correct others about what they think that they're wrong about. But oftentimes this problem of speaking quickly, uh, of speaking when maybe we shouldn't speak, comes because we lack humility when we should have humility, right? Where, where those that, that are good at listening, maybe they, they have that humility and that's a, a, a thing that, a characteristic that we might struggle with, right? So James instructs all to be quick to hear. Whether, whether that's something that you generally do good or not, he still instructs all, be quick to hear, eager to hear, eager to learn. But James is not just talking about a general be quick to, to listen to anybody. Be a good listener type thing. You know, somebody wants to bring you their problems, just be a good listener. That's not what he's talking about here. He's specifically talking about the Word of God. Be eager to hear from God's Word as God-gifted men teach it. That's what James is getting at here. If we learn to be quick to hear God's Word, then it should teach us to be slow to speak, right? Slow to speak concerning God's Word. This here includes the idea, the idea of slow to speak, includes the idea of being careful not to, to be thinking about your own thoughts or ideas while something else is, is teaching us God's Word. Uh, and that seems especially difficult today. I mean, it, it seems like far too often you go have a conversation with someone and, and it's like they're barely listening to you, right? Like they, they're dying to speak up and tell you what they think. They're not really interested in what you have to say. You can barely finish a sentence before they're jumping in and they're giving their own opinion. It's hard to imagine that they truly listened and considered what you were saying in that case, right? In that conversation. You kind of walk away thinking that you were the only, that they, they didn't care at all what you said. Now, people don't normally chime in during a sermon. They're not, they're not jumping in with their own, own opinions during a sermon. But that doesn't mean that our minds aren't still churning on, on our own ideas during a sermon or, or our own thoughts or maybe our own opinions about what's being preached instead of intently listening and taking in the Word of God. And James says, don't be that way. What was happening here in James is that these men and perhaps women who were trying to teach were doing so with little knowledge, yet they were quick to speak up. They were quick to give their opinions, whether they were right or not. But not only that, as we see this third part, they, were, they, would be get, they would get angry if another person contradicted them or tried to correct them. That's why James says, slow to anger. According to John MacArthur, the, the word here for anger, it, does refer, it doesn't refer to an explosive outburst of temper, but it is an inner deep resentment that seethes and smolders, often unnoticed by others. 
This is the anger that James is talking about. Not just some explosion where you get angry and it's over. It's this this deep resentment that builds up. And doesn't that explain what happens more often than, than it should in churches? Someone will hear something they don't like in a sermon or in Sunday school or maybe even in a business meeting. They don't just explode in anger. I mean, they might speak up briefly if, if for, uh, for what they might disagree with, but for the most part, they remain quiet and, and they just seethe in their anger. They, they let it continue to, to build up. And this anger, it turns to bitterness. And it starts affecting how they interact with other members. It starts changing their attitude towards the pastor, towards their church family, and even towards the Word of God. Before you know it, they've started causing dissension in the church because of their anger and bitterness. Oftentimes, they will just up and leave to find another church as they seethe in this bitterness instead of letting that go and addressing it and not being quick to anger. That's exactly what was going on here for these recipients of this letter. And James tells them, don't be that way. He tells them instead, learn to listen intentionally to God's Word, speak only when you've listened long enough and intentionally enough to understand what you've heard, and do all this with humility. Don't be quick to get angry when you're listening. Even if you hear something you don't like, or or if someone disagrees with you if you happen to be out talking to them, and and you're trying to show, or they're trying to show you why they disagree. Don't don't be angry in, in those instances. Let me say this clearly. Anger and bitterness never, anger and bitterness never advance the cause of Christ. James explains why here next. He says, anger in a man does not produce the righteousness of God. The NIV translates the phrase righteousness of God as righteous life God desires. And I think that helps us kind of understand what James is saying here. Let me explain God is righteous, right? Lost man is not. One of the wonderful truths, and we talked about there, or Blake spoke of the great exchange this morning, but one of the great truths of, of the great exchange which took place at the cross is that our sin and our wickedness was placed on Jesus there and His righteousness, the righteousness of God, was placed on us. Through Jesus' death, then, believers have the righteousness of God, Right? Now, it is not fully realized yet, while we remain in these natural bodies, we don't live perfectly and sinless despite what some might claim, yet professing believers have the ability to live righteously, right? In fact, as professing believers, that's exactly what God calls us to do. Live a life in obedience to Him which produces righteousness, James is telling these professing believers that if they are allowing themselves to be prideful, quick to anger upon hearing the Word of God, then they're they're not producing the righteousness of God. Their fruit is not godly, but instead worldly. And his point is simple here, really. Our anger does not produce behavior that is pleasing to God. Well, what about righteous anger? What, what What do we think about righteous anger? Can't we have righteous anger without sinning? Yes, that's possible. It is possible to be angry and sin not. That's not the anger that James is referring to here. And let us be honest, 
we don't exhibit righteous anger nearly as much as we think we do. We think every time we get angry, we're justified in it, and it's righteous anger. And that's not true. Most of the time, it's not. And don't think that just because we get angry concerning Scripture or theology or things going on at church, that that anger automatically qualifies as righteous anger. Don't skip over the fact that James is condemning anger here, which came after hearing the Word of God preached or because there was disagreement over an opinion as to what God's Word meant. That's what James is condemning here. In verse 21, James goes on and says, Therefore, so because you need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and because your anger is not righteous, it is sin, put it away. Put away all sin and wickedness, in fact, is what he says. The Greek verb here, which is translated to put away, it means to take off. And and really the idea is that of removing clothes. If you walk outside and you fall into a mud hole and you get covered with mud and water, well, I mean, one of the first things you're going to want to do is to remove those muddy clothes, right? You take, make real effort to get rid of those dirty, filthy clothes and put clean ones on. That's the picture here, the removing of dirty or filthy clothes. The believer is to put off wickedness and sin as a person sheds those muddy clothes. Why? So that you may receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your soul. Now, As we get into this verse here, it is important to remember that James is addressing professing believers, right? That's who he's addressing here. We know that the Word of God is essential in a person's salvation. The Gospel must be heard or known to a person in them before uh, they can believe and, and trust in Christ. Upon hearing of the Word of God and the saving work of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart, they are saved, right? We know that is the process. In that sense, then, the Word is implanted in us as believers, It is implanted in our heart. The new covenant, as promised in the Old Testament, it promised that God would remove hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. He would take His law and He would put it in His people, write it on their hearts. In doing so, God's people would love the Word, His Word, and His commandments, and they would have a desire to live and obey them And in this way, believers pursue. That's stark contrast to a lot of the Jews in the Old Testament, right? Even though they had God's Word and they they attempted, attempted, I, I air quote that, attempted to follow it through the law, many of them had no real desire to follow it. And so they weren't following it. But God says, through the New Covenant, He will give a heart which desires to follow it and obey it. Of course, the New Testament, though, is full of calls to professing believers to persevere. A call to make our calling and election sure. Perseverance is shown most often then in the living of God's Word. Righteous works do not save. Just talked about that. But they are evidence of true salvation. They are evidence that God's Word is truly implanted in us. If there is no desire for God's Word in our heart, then our heart has not been changed. The promise of the New Covenant is not alive in the heart of someone who professes to believe but has no desire to follow and obey God's Word. As Douglas Moo puts it, James' language here reminds his his readers that the Word that has saved them cannot be dispensed after, after conversion. God plants it within His people, making it a permanent, inseparable part of the believer, a guiding and commanding presence. Amen. 
John MacArthur explains it this way, just as the Word was the power of our new birth, so it is the power of our new life. I love that. The Word does not stop being effectual in our lives at conversion. It's the beginning. Our life, our new life is evidenced through the Word and our desire for it. James's focus here then is for the believer to continuously take in the Word of God and to have the Word of God replace filthiness and rampant wickedness which we all are prone to struggle with. James warns though that there is an essential element in receiving and accepting God's Word. It must be done with meekness or humility. The Word of God cannot dwell deeply inside of us unless we are willing to take it in with humility. That, of course, is true at conversion. There is certainly a humbling of the prideful, natural heart when we realize how wicked we are before a holy and righteous God and how He alone is able to provide an escape for the judgment to come because of our wickedness and His holiness. But that meekness and that humility towards God and His Word cannot stop at conversion. It should be an obvious fruit of a professing believer throughout their entire life. We are to listen to the Word being taught and preached with humility. Humility towards the teacher and towards the Word. Ultimately, this humility is towards God, right? It's God's Word. If we are reading it on our own, and, and we, can not, we, we can have a, a struggle to submit to it in our own hearts because of the pride in our own hearts, we can do that just at our own house. If a man is teaching us, though, whether it be in the pulpit or a Sunday school, if he is faithful to the text, then we need to be willing and ready to submit to what is being taught in humility. Right? We need to receive that Word in humility. Now, it, it is not uncommon for a lost person to respond to God's Word in pride and anger. Right? I mean, that's actually the common way in which a natural person, an unsaved person, responds to the, the Word of God and the instructions that God gives in His Word. Their nature is completely opposed to God and His instructions. We can expect that from them. Unfortunately, though, this doesn't just happen with professing believers. I mean, it doesn't just happen with lost. It happens with professing believers too. Believers can let pride and anger rise when being instructed by God's Word. James says, don't let that be the case. The faithful Christian instead should receive the Word implanted with a submissive, gentle, and teachable spirit, devoid of pride, devoid of resentment, devoid of anger, and every form of wickedness. He goes on in verse 22, and really the crux of of the the passage here sits in verse 22 and really the, the entire book. But he says, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So, okay, to this point, James has addressed how we need to approach the, the listening and preaching of God's Word initially, right? Be eager to listen. Be patient to speak or teach. And do those things with meekness and humility, ready to be corrected and willing to put away sin. Building on these truths, then, in verse 22, James explains that this is only half of our responsibility. He goes on to tell the reader that what it truly means to accept and receive the implanted Word of God, which he mentioned in verse 21. Joe Nyabor calls this verse the main theme of the entire book. James challenges here our perception of what it means to be a follower of Christ in a very personal way. We must ask ourselves these questions as we dive in to this verse. Barring from Brian Farley and his sermon when he preached through this, 
When, when we look at this, we need to ask ourselves these questions. Are you truly eager to hear and receive God's Word? Or is it just so that you can sound religious and smart when you talk to others or argue with them over theology? Are you truly eager to hear and receive the Word or just parts that don't convict you? Are you truly eager to hear and receive the Word by having a teachable spirit? The answer to these questions, they come in how you react to the hearing and receiving of God's Word. Does your life conform to what you hear or do you continue to ignore the parts which you don't want to hear, which don't fit what you want to hear, or that are just hard? Not only are we to hear the Word of God and learn from it, we are to then put what we have learned from God's Word into action. We are to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. James understood that it was, it was a battle. I mean, half the battle really to, to listen, right? I mean, to listen intently. Sometimes that's a major battle. James had to address that first. You can't do if you don't hear. But even for those who were willing to listen, who had learned to be slow to speak, they still had a battle, or they still had to battle, the desire to ignore God's Word by failing to put effort into obeying it. Doing the Word does not produce salvation, but it is a true mark of one who has truly been saved. Look, Scripture is full of passages that instruct us to follow the Word of God, right? I could be here all day reading those passages, but I want to give a, a, a couple. Well, I will in a minute, actually. Let me say this first. They demand our lives, these, these, these Scriptures, they demand our lives to conform to Scripture, right? Again, as Nabor, Nabor puts it, the Bible is not written merely to educate us, but to teach us how to live our everyday lives. God is our Heavenly Father. We will all readily admit that and praise Him for that. And just as an earthly father doesn't just give children instructions to impart knowledge on them, but to produce obedience, God didn't just give us His Word so we can walk around with a bunch of theology in our heads, but failing to apply it every day. The psalmist in Psalm 119 declares this, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of God. Of the Lord. Later he says, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Actions. Do you see the actions of the psalmist there? A desire to follow and obey God's word. Jesus taught repeatedly on this subject. He said this in John 8:31: If you abide in my word, then you truly are my disciples. Abiding is an action there. It is not just a, a knowledge of his word, it is living in his word. In John 14, 21, Jesus instructs this. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So your love is proven by you, your love of Jesus is proven by your keeping of his commandments. He told his followers in Luke 11, 28, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. To keep is to obey. Jesus emphasized how those who obey the word are blessed. And in the well-known story of the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand in Matthew 7, listen carefully to what Jesus says. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine, so we have their hearing, which is important, 
But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on, everyone who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Conversely, Jesus goes on to say, everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Look, both men heard God's Word, right? They heard the Word of Jesus. The difference is that one man obeyed the words, he did them, and the one other man didn't. Therefore, one man's man's house remained and the other one fell. Unsurprisingly, the apostles continued in this teaching of Jesus. Paul explains it this way in Romans 2.13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Peter writes in his second letter, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice, again, doing, if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Well, what are these qualities you talk about? Or Peter talks about? These qualities Peter referencing, was referencing were these. Faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. There are a lot of herbs in that list. A lot of actions. Here back in our passage, the, translated, the, the word translated be, as in be doers of the word, It's in the present middle imperative tense. If you don't know what that means, go ask Brian. He loves grammar. But what that means is this is a continual action. To be doers of the Word is a continuation. It is something that is constant. It's not just a one-time act. James is not saying, okay, you go obey this one time and you're declared a faithful servant. No, James instructs us to continually be doers of the Word. Every day we should wake up focusing on how God's Word instructs us to live, and then we should put feet to that instruction every day and every opportunity that we have. James explains that those who hear the Word only and fail to obey, they are deceiving themselves. That is, that, that's heavy. The Jew heard the Word of God all the time, right? That was an advantage that Paul actually reminds us of in the, Roman, in the letter that he wrote to, to the Romans. But merely having and listening to the Word of God was not enough for them. The Pharisees and Sadducees were a great example of this. No other Jew had heard the reading of God's Word more than they did. Yet they failed to follow it. They failed to obey it. So much so that they killed God Himself. They created all kinds of traditions and external rules to prove their righteousness. But they ignored God's Word. They were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they looked clean and beautiful, but on the inside, they were full of death and decay. For the professing believer, though, we have been implanted with the Word of God in new hearts of flesh, which are moved by the Holy Spirit to enable us to desire the Word of God and to obey it, to hear it and to do it. Look, for those of us sitting here in the freedom of America, it costs little to nothing for us to listen to God's Word. We're not put in jail for it. We don't have to make sacrifices for it for the most part. It requires little effort to sit for an hour or two and just listen. It is easy to say that we hear and understand and even agree with a sermon. We can sit and amen and shake our heads in agreement the whole service. But James tells us that is not enough. As William Yulee puts it, It is not enough to hear God's Word, not yet to be challenged by it, not yet to enjoy it, 
not yet to own its truth and relevance, that's, none of that is enough. We must obey it. We have to actually do what God's Word tells us to do. Otherwise, James tells us we are deceiving ourselves. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we are obeying God and living righteous lives despite not actually changing our actions to conform to what we hear. In verse 23, James gives an illustration of what that is, what that looks like. He says, For any, If anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He gives us this picture of a man who is deceiving himself, this righteous man who deceives himself. He says this man is, is one who looks intently at a natu- his natural face in the mirror. So understand the picture here. This man goes to a mirror and he looks at it. I mean, pretty simple, right? What does a mirror do? Well, it gives a reflection of whatever is looking at it, right? Whatever is in that mirror, it gives a reflection of it. In our modern day mirrors, it gives an exact reflection of it. So this man, he has a reflection of himself staring right back at him as he goes into this mirror. This man, though, doesn't just glance at the mirror quickly and then turn and and go away. No, this man, he looks intently. That's what James says. He looks intently in the mirror at himself, meaning he's staring at the mirror at himself, looking to see what is there. He is scrutinizing the reflection in his face. I mean, why would anyone else look look at himself in the mirror? To see if there's any blemish, right? to see if there's anything that needs to be changed. That's why you look at a mirror. Notice here that James uses the word natural to, to describe his face. The picture again here is that this person has nothing to cover up any marks, any blemishes. He's not applied any makeup. She's not applied any makeup. He just wakes up first thing in the morning, walks to the mirror and looks at his face. It's not a pretty sight for me in the morning. It's not a pretty sight in the afternoon either. But that's what he's doing. Then according to verse 24... This man does this. He looks intently in the mirror at himself to see if there's any blemishes. Then he walks away from the mirror and just forgets what he looks like. He forgets what he saw. He saw the blemishes on his face. He knew things needed attention, but as soon as he walked away, he stopped looking and he forgot about them. Now, this forgot doesn't mean that he had Alzheimer and he just truly forgot how he looked and it it was something he couldn't help. Instead, this is describing someone that chose to just put it out of his mind. Put the picture of himself out of his mind. Ignore anything that he saw that was wrong and just be satisfied with his blemishes. How does this apply to what James was saying about being doers of the Word and not hearers? Well, it should be pretty easy to see, I would think. I mean, James is saying that the man who hears God's Word, even if he's listening intently, even if he's amening it and shaking his head in agreement, but then he walks out the doors of the church and fails to do what the Word of God says, he's just like this man who looks in the mirror, sees the imperfections and blemishes in his face, knows it needs work, and clearly can see that in the reflection and the imperfections, yet as he walks away, he forgets about them, saying, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong. That's a problem, right? It's a problem to listen to God's Word intently, knowing that there's a problem that we need to change and then just walk out and forget about it. Ignore it as if there's no problem. John, John, excuse me, James contrasts this man in verse, verses 23 and 24 to another man, though. In verse 25, 
He says in verse 25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James says the righteous one is the one who looks into the perfect law and perseveres. The perfect law of liberty, as he puts it. The word to look here is different than the one in verse 23. Although the man in in 23 and 24 intently looked into the mirror, the man here in verse 25, he didn't just look intently. He stooped down. He got on his hands and knees to truly inspect thoroughly what that mirror showed. This is the idea of one who continues to inspect and attempt to remove the blemishes he sees through the Word of God about himself. James uses the term here, perfect law, to refer to all of Scripture, really, as it is inerrant, sufficient, and comprehensive. It is perfect, right? He uses the word law here, I think, to to really emphasize that Scripture contains God's words, or God's instructions and commandments to men. I mean, they're, they're commands and instructions to us on how to live, how to be saved. But he also calls it the law of liberty. Because for the believer, there is redemptive power in God's Word which frees us from the bondage of sin and judgment. It frees us then to live in righteous obedience. Our forgiveness in the blood of Christ for our sins does not then free us to go live in more sin. It doesn't take away our current obligation to obey God's Word. This second man understands and desires the Word of God, not in order to be converted, as he has already been converted, but to obey God in following His Word and to persevere. This person, this man, this second man perseveres then not by only being a hearer of God's Word, but also a doer of God's Word. He will be blessed in doing and being a doer and persevere. A man is not saved again by works, but works show a man is saved. I know I've said that a couple of times, but I think it's important to reiterate as that's exactly what James is is telling us. I'd love to preach verses 26 and 27. And James is really continually his thought there. He goes on to explain that important test as to whether we are doers of the Word or or whether we are able to control our tongues or care for the the helpless. Those are our tests to see if we are doers. Both of those subjects he will actually address later on in detail in this letter. I'm not going to preach those verses today. Don't worry. But I wanted to mention them, especially controlling our tongues as that is a common struggle for us today, right? It is hard to control the tongue. But what we say and how we say it matters. And it is proof of our faith and obedience to God's Word. Let me end with a couple of thoughts. It is wonderful to be part of a church where men stand before us or sit during Sunday school and they faithfully teach and preach God's Word. That is a blessing. There's no question in my mind that Todd and Brian, and Blake, and Burl, or Tim, or Lance, or anyone else that may fill in for Blake in the, the morning service if he's not there. There's no question that these men have taken great efforts to study, prepare, and deliver God's Word to us faithfully. That is a blessing. Let's not skip past that. But as John MacArthur warns, when people are blessed with regular, in-depth preaching and teaching of Scripture they may become so enamored with their knowledge of God's Word that they become self-satisfied with the knowledge and they forsake the effort to live out the profound truths they have come to understand. 
But the true believer will not be inwardly satisfied with merely knowing the Word. His conscience and prompting of the indwelling Holy Spirit will keep convicting him of his failure until he becomes obedient. Amen. A sign of spiritual maturity is a life more conformed to obeying God's Word now than we were when we were first saved. A person who's been saved for 20 years should be living a life more obedient and more in line with God's Word than someone who's only been saved two years. Let me make this point, and I think it is important, so please listen. Obedience to God's Word is not just doing the big things. And let me say big things in quotation marks. It is important that we refrain from committing sexual sin. It is important that we refrain from murdering someone or even assaulting someone. It is important that we refrain from stealing from another. It's important that we don't sell or use drugs. It's important that we do not drink to be drunk. Instead, we stay sober. It is important that we faithfully attend church. Those are important things. And I think those are, that's a, a small list of things that maybe we would all consider big things, big sins, big ways in which we follow and obey God's Word. And it is, it's important that we do those things. But it is equally important It is equally important to do the smaller things. I say smaller things because if our lives are not in line with God's Word and with His direction, in any way, we are not obeying God's Word. Therefore, we are sinning, right? For the believer, Jesus died for every one of our sins. Which means that even the little sins put Jesus to death for us. That is not a small thing. Not to mention that we often look at certain sins as big and certain sins as little, but our perception of what a big sin is and what a little sin is doesn't always meet God's perception of what a big sin is or what a little sin is. The truth is, none of us would equate gossip with murder, right? There are two different scales in our minds. I'll be honest, it is in my mind. But in Romans 1, it's in the exact same list of sins as murder and as haters of God. So is boasting. So is arrogance. So is disobedience to parents. So is envy, deceit, slanderers, covetousness. God hates all sin. All. Because it is rebellion to Him. And it is so serious. Every sin is so serious to Him that He put His perfect Son to death on the cross to pay for it. So even if we can be proud of ourselves that we haven't murdered someone, that we don't do drugs or get drunk, we don't steal from someone, even if we can be proud of those things, if we hear a message on putting others before ourselves and thinking more highly of our brothers than we do ourselves and then we step out of church 
ten minutes later, after hearing that sermon and we talk down about someone, or we complain because we aren't getting what we want, we're sinning. That's a problem. That's not obeying the Word of God. It is not doing the Word of God. Even if we sit in that sermon and we agree with every point, we amen it, amen it and we're glad we heard it, we are just being hearers of the Word only and not doers if then we go out and disobey that Word. I'll end with this. John in his first letter writes in chapter 3, verse 10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. That's heavy. That, that is heavy. We're not going to be perfect. We can't be perfect this side of, of heaven. We will make mistakes. We will sin. We will do things that we shouldn't do. The difference should be in a true believer how that affects us. Do we desire to change and conform to God's Word when we sin? Are we humble and accepting instruction, whether it be from the pulpit or from a loving brother or sister that comes to us? Does that our, our, is our desire to fulfill our responsibility to God's Word by being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and doers of the Word? Or are we like the world instead who prefers just to hear and act like we're religious? Act like we're conformed. But there's no change. Let's not be that. Let us do as James has instructed us to do. Let us hear God's Word. Let us take it in. Let's let it change our lives and let it be evident as we are doers of God's Word, not just hearers. Stand with me.